This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Tom Orlick is chief economist of Bloomberg Economics. He joins us from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Maybe doomed outlook is too severe, Tom, so forgive me for that. But how do you see it in terms of the latest virus news and what it means for the economic outlook, global economic outlook? Well, one of the interesting things in the last couple of days, Carol, is that we started to see the first real economic numbers out of China uh, and Korea uh, which give us a sense of how this is playing out in terms of the uh, the impact on growth. Uh, so we had a business survey out of China. The sales managers index doesn't normally get a lot of attention, but because it comes out early and because it's giving us the first read on the virus, this time uh, it has received uh, more attention. And that shows quite a sharp drop in China's uh, growth in February. And then we have an early reading on exports from Korea. Uh, Korea publishes a 20-day export number. So we know how much Korea has been selling and buying from the rest of the world in the first 20 days of February. The headline numbers there weren't catastrophic. But when you dug into the details and you looked at what Korea is doing with China, there was contraction in exports and contraction in imports. Uh, And I think those numbers combined with the concern you mentioned about cases spreading around China and around the world, uh, are what's driving uh, some of the additional market anxiety we're seeing today. And what do you make of sort of where China is domestically on, on this, Tom? Because, you know, part of what we're continuing to see, whether it's from Hasbro or Hilton or Hormel, you know, like, all of these companies in many ways are talking about their business there. You know, Hasbro saying office and third-party factory closures are something they're dealing with. Hilton saying 150 hotels, 33,000 rooms are closed. I mean, that's measurable. Yeah, so I'm certainly, Jason, we are looking at a severe blow to China's first quarter growth. Um, we don't know exactly how big that's going to be. But one striking thing is that if you look at the evolution of evolution of forecasts for China's first quarter growth, they're getting lower and lower. So at the end of January, people were saying, you know what, maybe China could grow at just 4.5% in the first quarter. That would already be a record low. If you look at the latest numbers coming out from some sell-side economists, people are talking about Chinese growth at less than 3% in the first quarter. Uh, and on a sequential basis, so the quarter-on-quarter basis, which most economies like the U.S. and the U.K. and Japan use to measure growth, that would mean that China is actually shrinking. Um, so we're certainly looking at a tangible negative impact. The reason I'm not succumbing to extremes of pessimism uh, just yet um, are, is, a couple, is, is basically because China can close things down really effectively and we see that with the quarantine in Hubei and other measures around the country, I'm betting they can also open things up really quickly as well. Uh, And at some point, fingers crossed, we're all hoping this outbreak gets under control, the public health risk becomes manageable, and China's leaders are going to say, okay, 
now it's time to get the economy humming again. And when that happens, I think things are going to open up just as quickly as they shut down. Yeah, I, I agree with you that I think as soon as we, you know, things turn around, you can quickly reopen up everything and kind of get back to normal to some extent. I do wonder, though, Tom, the cover of Business Week magazine this week is about fragile China. And China, in many ways, you know, probably better than most, um, how much it has been leveraging its society. There's a lot more debt, consumer debt, um, household debt, uh, much more than before. They have the largest banking system in the world. Again, you know, this is a government that when China gets into trouble, they open up their pockets and help out. Now, they've been doing steps, taking steps to reduce some of that leverage exposure, but at the same time, because of the virus, they've kind of had to reopen it, right? The government's had to reopen up its pockets to kind of help out businesses and so on and so forth. And I do wonder if that could be troublesome for China down the road. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on a key risk there, Carol. Uh, And we saw that crystallizing in the case of HNA, Mm -hmm. uh, the troubled airline and conglomerate, uh, which was already saddled with a very large amount of debt. And then, of course, faced a a crunch down in revenue because the virus really hit travel around the country. So no one was buying airline tickets. Um, And Bloomberg News is reporting that the government's considering uh, taking that company uh, into its own control. Uh, Now, the question is, could that happen on a larger scale? Could a month of very low growth or even a contraction in the economy um, really crystallize some of those debt risks? My bet is that China's policymakers have enough of control over the banks and enough of control over the corporates to keep things under control, at least for the first quarter. If the outbreak doesn't come under control heading into the rest of the year, then that's going to be a real concern. And there is concern because the CDC did a briefing call, too, as well, with a much more bearish outlook for the United States. Tom Orlick, as always, Bloomberg Economics, we appreciate your insight. Okay, you might be at a wedding, or you might be getting ready for a great Did you just special. hop out of your seat and start doing the electric <laughs> side? Come on, come on. Come on, everybody. Come Aunt on, Marge, Charlie. Come up here. Exactly. Uh, tonight at 9 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg TV, an in-depth look at the future of electric vehicles. It's called EVs on the Brink of Change. It's anchored and reported by Bloomberg Daybreak America anchor and host of Commodities Edge, Alex Steele, who joins us in our interactive broker studio. Man, you've been working on this for a while. Like a little over two years, so like not too long. <laughs> two wow. years, yeah. A lot's happened though in two years, right? Because usually, also, if you do one of these things, as you know, Carol, like you go into the field and you take a camera and a crew, and then you come back and put together a special. But that's not what we did here. We basically outsourced all the material globally from different continents, different regions, and like went through scores of interviews over the last two years to get the right voices for it to give you a complete story. If you didn't know anything about it, now you do. If you know a lot about EVs, now you know different angles, and like hopefully you have a really good idea of who wins who loses and how you make money. All right. So you knew a lot about it going in. What surprised you as you went along and all this stuff started coming in? Honestly, the uh, longer term viability of Tesla. Hmm. So it felt like at some point Tesla's going to roll over and like the GMs and the Fords are going to be able to take their amazing manufacturing carness and make that into uh, an EV powerhouse. And what surprised me is that is not at all the case. They are still like skiing uphill when it comes to pouring money into mm-hmm. it and not getting pro- the any traditional profits yet. Guys, the traditional yeah. guys. Uh, and Tesla's inroads into China are tremendous. And China has hundreds, hundreds of EV car makers. Um, and Tesla's just one of them. 
and they're way ahead. They're just it's, way ahead. It is staggering how Tesla so quickly was able to build a facility in China. I mean, and that just does not happen. And in they terms got subsidies for it, companies. and they got help exactly. from the government. Like also not happening, especially in the middle of a trade war. Yeah. Exactly. And exactly. so, what are you seeing from the traditional <clears throat> car makers? Where are they making, dare I say, uh, inroads? Is there what? What's the hope for them? The hope is that investors will be patient enough while yeah. they spend bazillions of dollars before they turn a profit on these cars. They need consumers to buy the cars. To do that, they need to have a lot more cars to sell. To do that, they need to partner with each other to mm-hmm. cut down on costs and help with like synergies in order to build the cars. And all of that is happening while you need to build infrastructure because you can't charge these things. The range fear is like a real thing there. Yeah, totally. Who's the most viable after Tesla? Like I feel like Tesla's like in their own little league. And then who do you look at? That's a really good question. I don't know if I have a good read on that, to be honest. Like the, when talking to a lot of experts, it feels like all the players in the OEM space, traditional car makers, won't exist Mm -hmm. like in five or 10 years because of this. They're not all gonna survive, but no one really knows who will be standing. We know who's left behind and also makes a difference who's in mobility, so like right. who's in ride sharing and yeah. who's going to be in uh, AVs, uh, uh, um, autonomous vehicles, and that's going to be the next thing. So when you look at it from the consumer perspective, perspective and the consumer adoption perspective, where are we in that regard and do you see any obvious sort of tipping points, either types of people or countries or geographies that is going to make it mass? Two things have to happen. Subsidies have to continue, Mm -hmm. number one. So that's going to be one to watch. Number two is that the battery costs have to come down. Whether that's like a new type of battery, like a fuel cell technology or hydrogen fuel technology or something along those lines, or literally the battery costs just come down enough that it makes you want to buy it. No one really is buying it out of like the goodness of their heart. It's like a dollar. Maybe you are, but like most of them are not. It's a dollar and cents thing. You need those two things to happen. Unless you're a Tesla devotee. Like that just you're all in on everything. Right. And when that happens, one or the other... That's when you're going to see the switch. The earliest people say are like 2024 is when it'll be comparable to the eternal combustion engine. And then you can make a real economic decision. Where's China in all of this? As you said, they've got a lot of EV makers. Yeah. So you will not get mass adoption without China. Right. Like hands down. And the difference with China versus other countries is like it's a mandate. Like when you see the president like speaking at their NPC and he's talking about like their life depends on climate he means it. Right. So that's a thing. So even if subsidies roll off, subsidies are going to go to infrastructure. Like they're in it. It's just a matter of how they weed through the oversupply of the car manufacturers, the money, those companies that are going bust to get there. Well, and, and they that, and they are they have the ability to build that infrastructure kind of from the ground up. I just think about the yes. cities they're building in terms yeah. of AVs and just they can do it much more easily than we can because we've got this existing infrastructure that's not really supportive of all of this. And that's not just China saying that. You talk to some U.S. experts who basically basically say watch this space in China yeah and that and basically saying that you know this is definitely not me this is through reporting for sure um that uh if a U.S. rolls back their subsidies, which has been happening, yeah. et cetera, mm-hmm. that we, we lose. Yeah. Um, Europe's kind of all in, too, but it's a tricky road for them also because, obviously, look at their PMIs. Like, they're still struggling, too. So yeah. it, 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 if we lose, we lose on that sense. 9 o'clock tonight? Yes, and it'll air tomorrow at 6 a.m. Oh, well, that's so what I'll be watching. If, if, You'll be up with Alice. Totally. So yeah. you really will be. So it, Yeah, 100%. You should and just email me. You know what? She's going to be a future electric car buyer that's I would right. Imagine, right yeah probably so, I mean, she needs like to I'm dying to buy stuff. an EV yeah. I just haven't quite felt like I've seen the right one yeah four years four years yeah cool. just be patient uh, patience I'm not patient Alex Steele thank you so much always great watch to see it, you watch it everyone watch it set
your DVRs. I'm independent, huh? You love me so this is independent funk. Go ahead, call it. Oh, no, I was just going to talk about uh, how people on the West Coast go and watch our television show at uh, midnight on a Friday night. They totally do. I mean, do. who's not doing that I mean, is really the question. Not? Yeah, exactly. Because then you'd miss stories like this and others. Yeah. Uh, Stars like Annie Massa and Joel Weber. Totally. So, often on like, our show. Put it on your calendar, folks. Put it on your phone. Uh, the era of independent online brokers is over. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here with all the details. Still getting over my cold. Uh, Annie Massa, investing reporter at Bloomberg News, and Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. They're both in our interactive broker studio. Regretting walking in, I, know, I think, like, at this what point. What the heck did I walk into? <laughs> all right, so this was a newsy week, uh, Annie, with E-Trade uh, getting sold to Morgan Stanley. Huge. Put this in the context of all this great work you've been doing over the past couple months, sort of helping us understand this fast-changing business of big money. Yeah, it's been a really active couple of months in M&A and especially in the brokerage space. So we wrote this story kind of as an obituary, honestly, to the discount brokerage era. And these are the companies like E-Trade and Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade that came up in the 80s and 90s, really uh, in the dot-com boom. And now that you're seeing E-Trade finally being sold off, finally finding a buyer in Morgan Stanley, it's kind of marking the end of like the age when you can be an independent, scrappy discount brokerage at all. Which we've seen coming for a while. It's like we were going to have consolidation in this space. And so in many ways, the writing has always been on the wall. What do you make of the Morgan Stanley part of this equation, though? That was a bit of a surprise. So after Charles Schwab swooped in to buy TD Ameritrade last fall, there there was a wide kind of like knowledge that E-Trade would have to look for what it could do, probably potentially find a buyer. And there have been years and years and years of speculation about who might buy E-Trade. So uh, Morgan Stanley coming in was interesting. That hadn't been such a widely circulated idea, but the businesses do make some sense together. What they were saying on the call is that um, Morgan Stanley wants that access to your more retail kind of audience with the lower right. minimums in their accounts um, and the wider distribution network. So they'll add that onto their wealth management division. Jack Ablin in your story says it was an act of desperation by Morgan Stanley. That's right. He had a kind of salty quote in there <laughs> saying that you know if, if you're a Morgan, you know if you're a Morgan. Stanley customer, you probably still have a full, uh, KB, full cable, cable TV, TV package. Yeah. So that was a little bit of a ding. <laughs> wow. But it is a clash of cultures Very in that way. Ablin-esque. Yeah, exactly. It kind of summarizing the older guard, um, you know, more mainstream Wall Street of Morgan Stanley coming together with, you know, we tried to capture like just how kooky E-Trade was in some of its years uh, really growing up. Uh, so, I mean, everyone remembers like the Super Bowl ads for E-Trade, all those. Uh, talking Baby. Yeah, yeah, the Talking Babies oh are God, super famous. That was the a great. Chimps. Remember we were talking about Ally McBeal yesterday yeah. because remember they used to use the, the talking creepy baby. <laughs> so so that moment looks like it's, it's past, right? RIP throws some dirt on it. But like, what does that mean kind of going forward for retail? I think it really symbolizes that you can't move forward as just offering trading because look what happened. I mean, the business of trading, now it costs you nothing to place a trade, nothing. So you have to have a different business model. And what we were trying to trace in this story is how these discount brokers were really challenging the Wall Street establishment when mm -hmm. they first got started in the 70s and 80s and then, you know, really ascended um, by offering access to trading for more yeah. people. Now what's happened is you either have to be a bank yourself as a brokerage, you can't just be a brokerage, or you have to get sold to a bank, apparently. 
so I want to ask you, Joel, because th this really is the, the latest in a series of stories that I feel like a very intense time in this. How do you sort of get your arms around this from an editor's I, perspective? I just think of it. We, we talk about it a lot here and in other meetings about the strategy yeah. angle to it. And like this is just the textbook kind of version of that. Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I, I still think the Schwab side of the story is interesting. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, we, we know the con consolidation has been something that's going to happen right but like who does it yeah like where do the partnerships kind of start to fall in line and then of course the other thing in all of this is the the other big kind of wallpaper topic is like you know look these are still in review right, right? like MA being a thing that is going to maybe start to get some pushback on and we see it in big tech we've heard rumors of it in the index space in terms of acquisitions there so i think there's still a lot that remains to be determined but you know for all intents and purposes it looks like these things would probably travel through so yeah definitely and you have um one other piece that kind of fits together uh, with Morgan Stanley and E-Trade is they both have these, um, you know, business to business uh, stock uh, kind of plat trading right. platforms. So those kind of fit in as well. Does the consumer win in this? Um, I guess depends on the type of consumer. From Morgan Stanley's perspective, I think that they want to get in the door of some of those younger customers, more used to trading online, maybe lower asset base right now. And then as they get a little bit older, you know, get a little bit more money in their bank account, more comfortable with trading, et cetera, uh, maybe get a mortgage, for example, um, and, you know, grow up in that way financially, then they want to offer them the more traditional Morgan Stanley type of products. So, and I think that, in a, in a, again, in a strategic kind of move, I think one of the things that they're trying to be almost like proactively defensive about is how do you fend off the things like Betterment, yeah. all right, and all the robo yeah. stuff. And we know that Vanguard's going to make a bigger play into robo. And for somebody like Morgan Stanley, like you can kind of emulate that through this acquisition of just like, we're going to have a pretty mobile centric person that then we can, you know, grow that clientele into being kind of a primary consumer. And Morgan Stanley has a massive infrastructure huge. and a huge amount do, of cash you, to deploy. Do you deploy. need any help? Right. Yeah. Because we're right, right here for you. Right. right? So I think, I think there's something going on to that thing. And I guess from the Wall Street perspective, too, it kind of symbolizes how banks have in many ways moved away from the riskier, like yeah. sexier yeah, totally. um, kind of div divisions and are relying more on like the little guy and retail. Just basic stuff. Yeah, right. the basics. Yeah. Like well, Goldman look at Sachs Goldman with Sachs. Marcus. Yeah. Yeah. With Marcus and their credit card. I yeah. mean, it is sort of amazing to think about, you know, that the war back in the day between Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs was like, investment banking fees and yeah. IPOs, they still do that, yeah. but... We'll take the pennies now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Lots of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, great stuff. It's a good story that's in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Very much on the news. Annie Massa, investing reporter for Bloomberg, alongside Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so we want to take a look at one stock that's actually not lower in today's session. In fact, it's up about 7.5% off its highs of the days. Uh, we're talking about Deere and Company, um, surging the stock, that is, the most since 2016, the surprise growth and farm recovery. So let's get into the company's most recent quarter. Brooke Sutherland knows it well. She's our deals and industrials columnist at uh, Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us in our interactive broker studio. Was this a surprise? 
I think it was a surprise just because there's been, you know, a pretty steady drumbeat of negative news out of the manufacturers. Deer is sort of coming in here at the end of the industrial earnings season, and it was a rough fourth quarter out there for most of the manufacturing sector. And so I think to see the surprise profit growth, this talk of green shoots, especially on a day when the news yeah. otherwise is suggesting a lot of continued uncertainty and, and, and downbeat outlooks, I, I think is why you're seeing the stock react the way it did. Right. Uh, and as you say, sort of count to what we had heard, what are they doing differently from everybody else? I don't know that they're doing anything differently. I mean, I will say, so one of the things that's been interesting with manufacturing is there was this huge expectation that we would see a sharp rebound once we did finally yeah. get that U.S.-China trade deal. Now, that hasn't happened. And one of the reasons why is that it was a relatively modest slowdown for most of the manufacturing sector. And there weren't really, you know, this huge drop off in orders and in demand and in some of these pockets. You did, however, see that with agriculture. And that's because of the tariffs that mm -hmm. have really, you know, seen China significantly curtail their purchases. And so the fact that China, you know, may now be coming back to the market, making significant agricultural commitments uh, should be a boon to farmers' confidence and their willingness to spend on this expensive machinery. Now, on the other hand, uh, that depends on the coronavirus right. not messing all of that up, which I think is a huge question mark. Right. And there's a headline that we ran, I guess, coming out of their call is that they're undertaking supply contingencies amid the coronavirus, right? So they're thinking about, okay, I guess if this goes on longer, what? Well, how is that going to impact us? How do we kind of mitigate that impact. Which, and that is where this will really hurt industrial companies. So yeah. what's been interesting is the trade war certainly hit manufacturers worse than some of the consumer companies. The coronavirus might be the other way around, where if you were going to buy a Starbucks latte, you were going to go see a movie, you were going to go see a cruise. If you have to cancel those activities, you're not going to suddenly repeat them in excess on the days when you come back. Right. Whereas manufacturing... I'm having four Starbucks lattes today <laughs> and I'm because go I see didn't... three yeah. movies and, and take five cruises. Yeah, I mean, and yes, five. And maybe Nothing not but now, cruises. But <laughs> so, whereas manufacturing, you know, it will come back and, you know, as long as the demand holds up in some of the other parts, you can see that, you know, made up. But the concern is on the supply chain. And so now yeah. you have Deere and Nissan has also, there's a Bloomberg News report that they're concerned about getting parts to all of their international operations right. because you have these very globalized, far-flung supply chains. And that was very in vogue 20 years ago. And then those have come under significant scrutiny, not least of all because of the trade war, but now because of the coronavirus. Is, that, just really, is that really going to change, Brooke? I do wonder if people are going to have kind of mini supply chains all around the world. I think they will. I think they have to. I mean, I think at this point in time, you cannot have, I mean, I, I had the pleasure of hosting the CEO of Aviva earlier this week for an interview, and he they provide industrial software. And he was saying, look, you can't have your part shut down and you need to get a there and you can't get it for weeks because China's closed down because of the coronavirus right. or all of a sudden it costs so much more. So they, you know, sell industrial software to do predictive maintenance. So you can know when there's going to be a downtime and you can plan for that accordingly. But for a lot of these other companies, you're going to want to have localized operations that can supply that operation. Now that might make the pain more acute, right. you know, a situation like the coronavirus, but at least it doesn't affect your healthier geographies. Yeah, um, he, he joined us on air. Yeah. yeah, it was really fascinating, right, to hear it. But it's it's interesting to hear your bigger picture because your universe is so right. huge in terms of those industrial companies. All right, speaking of your universe, uh, it would be uh, journalistic malpractice if we <laughs> had you here and didn't ask you about like the various turnarounds that uh, you've been following, be it uh, Boeing or, or GE. What's sort of jumping out to you in the latest and, and greatest in those sagas? 
So I think GE has started to turn the corner, which mm-hmm. is nice to see because it's yeah. been a long time com- coming. Um, but Larry Culp has made a lot of progress there. And I think he's, um, you know, much more so than a lot of the skeptics, including myself, had anticipated. Mm. Um, now, there's still a long way to go, but it does seem like the worst is behind that company. Now, for Boeing, it's the heat hits just keep on coming. Yeah. This week, we had the news <sighs> that they, you know, have found rags and other debris in the fuel tanks for some of the stored 737 MAX jets. And, and now, ignored that warning light. And the light. warning light. Right? But that's been out there Has that it? they knew about it and they didn't tell the FAA. Um, but now the question, of course, is do they have to pay a penalty uh, for that? Okay. And so, the, you know, these penalties could be as much as $34,000 per plane. And there were some 300 planes that, you know, were out there with this warning light wow. that was deficient. And so as you start adding up the cost that Boeing has to face from this crisis, that's certainly another one that you have to Do they recover from this? I think they do, but not necessarily on their own merits. I think that they are the beneficiaries of a duopoly with Airbus. And the reality is if you are an airline that needs a plane right now, you're going to the back of a six, seven year backlog at Airbus to get those jets. So you just do not have that option. But Mm -hmm. I do think you know, in, in terms of does Boeing actually learn its lesson, I'm, I'm hopeful that it right. does. I'm hopeful that the industry puts that pressure on the company, but certainly the market dynamics are relatively supportive of this yeah. company, you know, sort of continuing to run its business as it has been. All right. Great stuff as always. Yeah. So smart. Thank Brooke, you. H- Brooke Sutherland, Deals and Industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, talking to us about Deer, Boeing, <laughs> GE. All the fun ones. And we found out her guilty pleasure is give Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, but I think that I think what happens in the break stays in the break, Carol. <laughs> I'm sorry. All That's right. actually a cool show. It's a great show. It, it's a great show. Right. It, it, it could be worse. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, I didn't say That's like true. Housewives That's of Beverly Hills or anything. <laughs> That's yours. That's mine. Right. Totally. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Carol and I just taking care of some important business and learning about both the carryout insurance and delivery insurance for Domino's Pizza. Uh, thanks to Dave Wilson. And thank you to Mauricio, who noted that I did snort on air several yeah. times. Yeah, a couple times. Yeah, Because <laughs> it was kind of amusing. Yeah. Well, I'm here to amuse you. Not so amusing as today's trade. Yeah. No, no you uh, always Not as me. amusing. Uh, John Adams is here with us, Senior Investment Strategist for BMO Global Asset Management. Joining us on the phone from Chicago, where I'm guessing it's even colder than it is here in New York City. So, John, it feels like the market caught up today with maybe some of the more existential worries that are out there related to coronavirus. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. And it, it is, in fact, very, very cold in Chicago today. But yeah, we're, we're definitely closing the week on on a negative note today. We got some weak U.S. service sector data to start out the day. And then we're seeing some increased concerns about the economic outlook and the idea that the impact from coronavirus may be longer lasting than previously expected with an increase in the number of cases uh, outside of China and the potential for some additional uh, supply chain disruption. Well, yeah, and that's certainly, you can see it in the trade. I also feel like we're just getting to a point, until we get um, containment of this, why would you want to take too much of a position ahead of a weekend? 
Yeah, I think it is continuing to hang over the market. We are seeing a record low now in the U.S. 30-year, to your point about not wanting to take risk into the weekend. So, I Can we unlikely- talk about that 30-year, though? That is not just, though, coronavirus, or is it, in your view? I think it's partially the coronavirus. I think it's also partially just concerns about uh, weaker economic growth uh, overall. You know, we have been uh, a bit longer duration in our portfolios as a partial hedge to our uh, equity overweight, and that that has been a, a good view for us. All right. So how do you look at equities in this market? How do you look at them domestically? How do you look at them internationally? Essentially, how do you build a portfolio given everything that's going on around the world? Sure, yeah, we think it's definitely a case for a, a diversified portfolio. So on the equity side, we remain overweight equities uh, with a bias toward the U.S., and I would say their policy continues to be the main driver for us. We think the Fed will remain supportive if we do see softness in economic growth or weaker inflation or a continued headwind from uh, coronavirus impact. We think the Fed can and will uh, step in at that point. Uh, from a valuation standpoint, we think that U.S. equities are only moderately expensive, when viewed relative to both current interest rates uh, and and the inflationary outlook. Uh, And so against that overweight equities, uh, we're also modestly overweight uh, duration uh, as a partial hedge uh, against that overweight equities. All right. So so it's hard to, I guess, assess how this year is going to play out. I mean, I know it's only February, Mm -hmm. but I do wonder that, you know, I keep saying that the the virus is just a reminder that things can come from nowhere, right? And we're anticipating, I mean, obviously it's an election year. We're anticipating potentially another round of U.S.-China trade. We'll see if that actually happens. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff out there that can uh, certainly, you know, upset investors. Yeah, I would say we're we're still pretty optimistic on the outlook uh, for this year. We have gotten off to uh, a pretty good start uh, on the year. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are always kind of global macro risks, and I would say uh, that the the two front of mind for us are the U.S. election and coronavirus. Um, On the election, we think the markets are really looking through that to an extent um, for the time being. Uh, We do think that even if Sanders were to be elected, the Senate would likely remain a Republican. And so we think that more ambitious plans likely wouldn't get through. I think the market's taking that as a, as a positive. If you have a, a Trump re-election, uh, if you have a moderate candidate on the Democratic side, or even if you have a progressive candidate, uh, as long as Democrats don't take the Senate, uh, that should be uh, neutral to positive uh, for equity markets. All right, we're going to leave it there. John Adams, thank you so much. Senior investment strategist for BMO, Global Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Chile, Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.